Welcome to Broad Eye, the podcast that explores knowledge gaps in ophthalmology and eye care. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another uh, episode of the Broad Eye uh, Ophthalmology podcast. Like today, uh, it's quite special because we have a guest host as well, like uh, Dr. Rubens Belfort. How's it going? Hey, Bruno. Great to be here. It's an honor to be here on Dr. Singh's uh, participation uh, on your podcast. Thank you for the invitation. So, yes, we do have an illustri- illustrious guest today. Like, I mean, give him a background in oncology. I'm a big fan of him. Uh, Dr. Aaron Singh, thank you very much for accepting the invitation and, and uh, being here to chat with us today. Oh, it's a privilege also. Thank you. All right. Uh, so, despite uh, all your knowledge, like in the field of oncology, like today we're going to talk about something different. Uh, your other passion, which is like scientific publishing. Uh, so, would you could you tell us a little bit, like, I mean, uh, how and when did you get involved in it, and and what exactly is your role within the, the scientific publishing industry? So, I've been in this publishing business for a while. My first paper, I remember, was published in nineteen. 90. So this is what 30 years now. And the few things that are important is writing is not just about trying to write about anything that you see, but it's also, I think it's important about learning and increasing your own knowledge. The best way really to improve your knowledge is to try to write something. And in the process, you have to educate yourself and you tend to read very deeply, very broadly. And so me, that's the best way to improve your knowledge is to write. And uh, you, you're, you're the editor-in-chief of the British Journal of Ophthalmology, is that right? Yeah, so that was uh, some years ago. I was a co-editor-in-chief with Dr. Dua uh, for almost seven years. Um, and that was a very busy time. Uh, that was the chief editorship. And after that, we started our own journal here in oncology, which is ocular oncology and pathology for which I'm the editor with Dr. Hans, Dr. Hans Grosniklaus from Emory, and he's a pathologist, as you all know. Very good, very good. So, Dr. Singh, uh, when we think about uh, the scientific uh, industry, the peer review process is very important, right? Uh, could you please tell us a little bit uh, of your impression on the peer review process as it is today and why it's important uh, for science? So peer review process, as the name indicates, is a review by your peers. Peers are people who are knowledgeable about the topic, who are in the same field, and are in some ways also competing with you because they're in the same sphere. And smaller the field, more is this tension or the competition because there are only so many people and we tend to know each other. In a bigger field, say like cataract and refractive surgery, there'll be thousands and thousands of authors and there'll be so many reviewers and so they tend to become more anonymous and more generous. In smaller fields, peers can be, although we say we have no conflict of interest, but inherently there is. And there is a clear bias which is a disadvantage to the author because in majority of the journals the the review process or the peers who review your article are anonymous we don't know who they are but obviously they know who you are as an author so it's like an asymmetry of of information one side knows 
who the other is and the other one doesn't know. And in this cloud of anonymity or behind this shadow, sometimes the peer review process is not as positive or as desirable or as fair as it should be. And I think that's the role of the editor to realize or have some sense that this is an unfair criticism. So that's so there's a limitation with the peer review process. But at the same time, if you try to say, well, we should have an open review process, that is, we know who the reviewer is, then it's very, un- very likely that the review may also therefore be more positive because nobody wants to criticize somebody on their face, particularly a junior faculty to a senior professor may not want to write harsh criticism of a useless paper, even if written by a famous ophthalmologist. So there are some advantages and disadvantages, but most of the time, peers are, peer review process is a one-sided process where they are kept uh, blinded or anonymous. That is, that is very good. I never thought of uh, it uh, uh, on that way. It's very interesting. And one of the uh, uh, flaws, right, or, or, or criticisms of the peer review system, of course, nothing's perfect, uh, is that, you know, like because the reviewer knows uh, who the author is, uh, there, there might be uh, a system where of uh, like, a, like, a, like an inside network where, like, let's say, like, I mean, we know each other and then I happen to be the review of your paper and I'm going to give a favorable review. And then if you receive and you're the review of my paper, then you're going to be favorable in my review. On the other hand, if let's say someone that is not so known in the, in, in the, in the community, they might not receive like such a favorable like a review. Like my, my point is like, I mean, uh, is it a system where like, I mean, the, the who might matter more than it should than the content of the paper itself? So in the ideal world, every should be, everything should be fair, but it's not because we all have biases. And biases can even go extend to like countries and regions and people and names and, and institutions. Just to give an example, somebody, or the way the English is written, somebody writes a paper from some small town in India or some remote university in Brazil. And there's another paper from Harvard, just to give a name, of the same topic. The reviewer just inherently is more biased to accept a paper from Harvard um, than from, say, a small town in Brazil, for that matter. And same then the thing translates uh, to how famous the author is. More famous the author is very likely they get away with bad quality papers. And so it perpetuates. More you become famous, it's more easy for you to write bad papers because you are not held to that high standard where a novice author is. So these are human biases and we can only try to overcome, but I don't think we can. And so therefore people are trying to do like some kind of a AI-based system where the review is um, a kind of, uh, they have break it down into components. Is it a novel idea? Is it a well done study? Is it a large study? So they break down into 20 components and assess the paper more objectively rather than my assessment, oh, it's a good paper. 
So there are companies, and one of one of which is in Switzerland, who's trying to do this kind of process where they are trying to make take it away from being subjective to being more objective. So, well, Dr. Singh, you, you already mentioned it. So uh, not only big institutions end up having a, a, some facilities on, on a, or easier ways of getting published, but we could also say that researchers affiliated with large institutions have easier access to data and also may uh, have a, a better uh, review uh, from a colleague. Uh, do you think the, the peer review system in, in that way reinforce elitism? Is it a, a club that is very hard to get in, but once you're in, uh, uh, in a big institution, uh, it makes it easier, easier for you? Yeah, so there is. So if you get into a big university, you have a lot more resources, a lot more money, better quality data, information, maybe even more rare conditions more new technology, bigger companies more likely to come to you with the new instruments. So you have these inherent advantages. And it's just that, you know, if you're born in a rich family, you have certain advantages. Uh, okay, you can define them because if your father is rich, he's very likely to marry a beautiful woman. So there you go, you're naturally handsome. And if you're handsome, um, then you are more attractive and therefore you have some social success. And it goes on and on and on. So same way, uh, working in a privileged institution, not necessarily big, but a high quality or higher respected or more advanced institution, certainly imparts all the advantages to you. So yes, there is a club. And therefore, all these old journals, you know, if you look at the, all the editors, where are they coming from? They're coming from those institutions who are in editorial board. They're all from these institutions. And therefore, uh, they have to control the playing field. I mean, that's just what it is. You look up any journal, and you look up any editor, and you'll find that they are from these places. Uh, Dr. Singh, like, so, like, another uh, flaw, right, of the peer review system is uh, how long it takes. Right? So, like, let's say if you have a data and then you send it to a journal, like it might take months like until that uh, that paper is available for, for, for the scientific community. And uh, because of that and other reasons, you know, like, I mean, there's been a growth of uh, non-peer-reviewed uh, platforms where, where researchers can share their, their data. And that is sometimes uh, uh, like inserts into scientific journals like supplements uh, or like, I mean, releases on, on blogs or, or personal websites or even podcasts like like this one uh so the question is like is it is there any credibility to to, to the non peer review like system does it have a place in the scientific industry it's like anything else we are evolving to a more open and equitable society and therefore this peer review process which is tilted away from an average ordinary author will is all will also diminished to some extent but it's like old traditions it's there there's power and influence and that's not going to disappear very easily and all these alternatives that you mentioned particularly there are these sites where you can pre-publish your paper and that does not stop you 
from publishing in a peer-reviewed journal later on. So you have a good study, you think it's innovative, it's novel, you can deposit it in this repository and you can claim to be the, the first person to do that. You, this is a registration that you did this because you published it online. And then you can refine it, polish it, adjust it to the requirements of the journal and publish it. And so this, this model is very common in other fields, not just of medicine, but other fields where sometimes they can take one year for peer review. But in, in ophthalmology, let's say, we maximum we say one month, you know, four weeks, six weeks, is most of the journals will turn around papers in three to four weeks. But still, if you want to claim, you know, novelty or claim some innovative, uh, then you can do um, this kind of deposit in, into a site. So I think that's a good way, it really is. Very interesting. Dr. Singh, uh, why does it cost so much to download a paper? If we take into consideration people that are not in a big institution, especially in, in North America or in Europe, uh, usually the private hospitals, sometimes even the public institutions in, in other countries uh, won't allow the, the physicians or scientists to access the paper and we have to pay for it. If we consider that the reviewers, authors, sometimes editors and if you print it online, even printing is free. Why is it so expensive? So the, the cost really is of making this PDF and layout, etc. So when you submit an article, somebody has to make sure that everything is correct in terms of content, all the references are correct, the figures are correct. You don't say figure one and figure one is missing, for example. So those kind of editing and copy editing process uh, to make a PDF uh, which is complete and total, uh, takes certain time and money. So the money is actually for that. Secondly, all these publishing companies are pro for profit. So they have to make some profit uh, from the journals. And if you say, I go to an alternative model where I want free access, then they charge the author to pay for it. So either the author can pay money and publish the article and it's free to everybody, or you can make it free for the author, which generally is, and then you charge the reader to pay for it. These are the two models. There isn't a third model where it is free for the author and free for the reader. Yeah, you can make a journal. If you have some kind of endowment, then you say I have these millions of dollars and I will run this journal and it journal and it's free to everybody. But there is certain inherent costs and the costs are is a production basically and some profit. But there's real cost, I mean, plus they archive the material, they host the material, they make it searchable. Um, you can go back and find it, it's archived, those kind of things. So there is uh, some some uh, cost in all that. So Dr. Singh, like, I, I mean, we all know that if you want to find a paper, we go on PubMed, right? So like that's where all search starts. It's, it's very rare that we go in the page of a journal like start looking for uh, a, a manuscript uh, unless of course like I mean, we know that the manuscript was published there uh, but even then like I mean, all searches like will probably start on putting that anyway uh, so I, I 
I mean, I, I understand that once upon a time, like maybe for the internet, like I mean, specific journals were needed because they would cater to specific societies or, or specialized fields and, and so on. But now like that, you know, like maybe you find a paper on PubMed, regardless of like, I mean, which journal is it at, uh, is there a rationale to eventually uh, just uh, like uh, eliminate completely the journals and just have like one uh, repository of uh, scientific publications? So the answer is to some extent, yes. It's good to have all the articles available and then you can choose for yourself. But then when you have so many articles, it's very difficult to choose which is better quality and which is not so good based upon the scientific content and the methodology. So journals, especially high quality journals, do good evaluation of statistical methods, validity, biases, other things inherently that can be present in the paper to, to assess for that. So those are the advantages of having reading an article from a high quality journal versus an article that is just self-published because you do not know, or average reader cannot tell, these statistical methods and other things in the paper, uh, whether they're right or wrong. So that's the, that's the one advantage, I think, of a high quality journal. All right, so you kind of guide the, the researcher, right? When he's finding the papers, that can, if he knows the journal where it's coming from, it's sort of like a stamp of quality, right? So that, That's kind, that's right, yeah. Uh, so taking a turn here and then, uh, we've, we've been we talked already about the cost of uh, accessing like I mean those uh, publications and it's just prohibitive for uh, a huge chunk of researchers like worldwide particularly the people that are from uh, developing countries that do not have uh, institutions that sign for for having universal access like to all that data and because of that that's been the explosive growth of platforms where people can find those those papers for for free you know? and it's like like not exactly legal it's kind of like sci-hub or libchan uh so like just i just wanted your your, your view on this uh, phenomenon and and how the the traditional like uh, scientific publishing industry uh sees it like I mean, is there any way to quantify the damage that it that it that it does so these platforms, how do they harm the traditional industry? Yeah, 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 that, that'll be a, a way of summarizing the question. Yeah. So like everything else, I think they're complementary. You know, they, they have their own market and they have their own audience. Whereas other people, for example, the traditional models, people in that. So there are different populations and different readerships and different regions and they will continue to flock in their own ways for a long time. So there'll be some inroads from this democratic system, let's say, trying to get into the elite system, but it's going to take time. Okay, very interesting. And so Dr. Singh, what do you think can be done to make access to scientific information more universal? I think there is already some move in this direction and one of them would be of differential pricing. So when people go from different parts of the world, 
developing nations or low-income countries, let's put it that way, then when they try to access an article from Elsevier or other websites, then maybe they should be charged less money based upon where you're coming from. So the differential. So there are um, sites where that will happen or some journals will do that. So that's one way. Second is that if a study is supported by a grant, which some of them are in, in the US and UK and other countries in Europe, then these articles are free access. So suppose I have a study funded by the US government, then they are almost always free access because the government insists that you make it free access. So the author may pay to the publisher some money to make it free to everybody. So there are some system movement in this regard going on. And, but the third thing really I would say would be uh, you know, private endowments, etc. For them to start their own journals, say for example, there are big endowments in, in Brazil. And you say, okay, we have Brazilian Journal of Ophthalmology, etc. But you can have another journal where it's free and the cost is kept minimal either by donations. People can just donate some money and say, I take $10 and I take this article. And the rest of it is, is managed to some donations from the endowment and, and even drug company support, for example. You know? So you raise money for a conference, but you raise money for a journal. And you have, you know, every year, you, you kind of have some money to run it. So that, that is just a, like any other system, you can do crowdsourcing funding huh? <laughs> for a journal, and there's nothing wrong in that. Yeah, I, I, but the thing, I think I agree with everything you said, you know, like I think there's a room for, for everyone in the field and things continue to evolve. Uh, the point was not to just uh, trash the, the peer review scientific no, no. system. I, I, I'm a fan also, look, I mean, I'm, 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 I published me in book, you know, like in many papers and uh i think that's it like dialogue right like i mean see the problems and and i keep fixing them like 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 research <laughs> but yeah before we finish i would want to point out that peer review system has good intentions hmm? and it works well if everybody plays it correctly so the author submits the paper in all earnest that he'll get fair treatment and the reviewers may reject the paper and that's okay as long as they write fair criticism this is the flaw this is the fault this is the flaw etc 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 so there is some learning in the process the review the author will then read them and if he can change it or accommodate he will to improve it or if there's certain flaw he learned from his methods the next time he does the research he will not do that so there is this process of learning in all of this which is a positive way it should be. But also, like we talked about, there are negative things and we kind of mentioned those, but I do want to point out that the intention is great. Uh, and I think we, it's on, impendent upon all of us to be fair and equitable, like in our personal lives, also in academic lives. Yeah, I, I agree. I'll be not perfect. It's still the best system we have. So. Yes. All right, so uh, I'd like to wrap this up by thanking you again. Uh, it was a pleasure like to share with you. I would like to 
to thank Dr. Ruben Belfort for being the guest host of this uh, episode. He's a good friend of mine, so it's always good to connect and spend some time together. Man. All right. Thank you, Bruno. Thank you, Ruben, for inviting me. It's a pleasure to talk to you both and, and to meet you and see you guys. Okay, thank you. Thank you, Dr. Singh. Thank you. Bye-bye.